This was the 25th player selected in the draft. Durant on a breakaway. Underneath, Durant. Look at him go against Turpin and a foul on Melvin. Durant is tough. There's no doubt about it. Backdoor Durant. Durant flying down the baseline. Oh, he's tough. 22 now, Bob, for Devin Durant. He's got eight baskets here in the first half. One thing you have to remember about Durant, Bob, is that he didn't play in 1981 and 82. And he was on a mission over in Spain. Barnett was talking about, not Durant. Working on Walker. One-on-one. Oh, fine move. Boy, he's got a million of them. I mean a million of them. He's kind of like Bird in that way. He has a lot of moves at the basket. Back. Nikovich and, well, the move by Durant. He's not going to be intimidated by anybody. Durant off the glass. Down quickly. Durant. Right there! He's got it. Durant. Goes up with it. Got it. Turpin foul. I don't see how he got it by Turpin. You talk about Devin Durant, you, you start thinking in terms of, at least shooting-wise, Larry Bird. What's up, everybody? Not my house is in the house. This is your host, Eric, and as always, right next to me is my co-host, Zach. Zach, what's going on this morning, my friend? I'm just excited. I'm a big BYU fan. We've had a lot of former BYU players on the show. We've heard a lot about this guest. I mean, he's a legend, so I just can't wait to get to it. It's going to be a really good one today. Absolutely. He was a BYU legend, like you just said, who was the WAC Player of the Year. He was the 25th overall pick in that incredible 1984 draft. He had a successful career in the NBA and overseas, and is the author of a new book called The Value Delta. Honored to have him on today, Mr. Devin Durant. How are you today, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you, gentlemen, for having me on today. Absolutely. Thanks for taking the time out. We appreciate it. We'd like to learn a little bit about our guest before we start talking hoops. Look like you grew up in Utah. What can you tell us about your childhood and what was it like growing up in Utah? Well, I, um, when I was younger, I get my first introduction to basketball. I think I was in, in fourth grade and uh, had that opportunity to go out to the playground and, and we uh, divided up teams and and uh, well, we had two captains and started choosing up sides. And, and unfortunately, there was 11 guys there that day. And I was the 11th man, didn't get a play. So I got introduced to, to failure early on in my basketball career. But the key part of my basketball days was, was time I spent in Louisville, Kentucky. So I, I was, spent three years in Louisville. And those years were, were very important for me in so many respects, but uh, primarily uh, basketball, those, 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 those days on the courts in Kentucky were our sweet memories. And, and then from there, I did play high school basketball back in Utah and then off to BYU, as was mentioned earlier, and then a, a brief, a, a brief stint in the league. So now, so you were, so how old were you, were you, when you were in Kentucky? I was uh, from 11 to 14 uh, oh. through the ninth grade. So that's like a perfect time for your development in basketball. Were you playing a lot of blacktop then? Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. And like you say, it was a it was a perfect time. And one of the reasons it was perfect was because I I had uh, the perfect coach for me uh, in in those those young years that that really set me on, on my path. Yeah, and when you're playing the blacktop game, when you're really starting to get into basketball, I always like asking this question, but who were some of your idols growing up? Like, who did you want to play like? Was there somebody that you looked at and really wanted to try to build your craft after? 
Yeah, probably really two names stand out for me in my time in, in Louisville. And the first one was Julia Serving. So back in the day, and also, Philip, I got to tell you, too, I, I listened to your podcast with Bob Nedelicki, parts of it, and, and that brought back some sweet memories of the old <laughs> ABA days. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, he was that a was good classic. Time. You know, Roger Brown and Mel Daniels, they were good to me back when I was in Indiana. But anyway, the uh, so this is back when with the Kentucky Colonels and, and uh, New York Nets would come to town with Julius Irving. And Julius was certainly my, uh, the one I looked to uh, just for so many different things, you know, starting with the, the, the man could fly, but he was also just a class act and I loved everything about him. So my, my friend and I, every opportunity we had, we, we, we went to Freedom Hall and watched the Nets play. And we'd watch those games and then come home to our, uh, you know, our blacktop and, and try to imitate uh, and emulate what, what Dr. J was doing. So he, he would be at the top of the list. The second one was uh, Daryl Griffith. So okay. Daryl Griffith went to male high school in Louisville. And so my friend and I, we would just travel around the city of Louisville uh, to watch Daryl Griffith play. And, and so those two are real standouts for, for me as a young boy trying to fashion my game. And they were great models to follow. Yeah, Dr. Duncanstein for sure. I mean, I always, uh, my dad made me watch a lot of those guys. I'd always try those moves, like the Julius serving behind the backboard move. It didn't always work out, but I still tried them. <laughs> but, uh, you know, since you started so late in basketball, um, I mean, what was the high school scene like for you at first? Can you, can you maybe walk us through your high school career? Like, when did you really start to feel that you were a next level type player? Like, and also, did you play against any familiar names that our listeners might know? You know, the, uh, like I said, I, my last year in Kentucky was ninth grade. And so I uh, moved back to Utah and started out as a sophomore at, at Provo High School. And, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't amount to much as a sophomore. My, my junior year, I played on a team with four terrific seniors. But uh, we got to the state semifinals and got beat by a guy named Danny Brains. And Danny had a wonderful career in the NBA, but he, he was truly one of the, or well, for me, he's the best basketball player that ever came out of the state of Utah. Uh, he was just a tremendous talent in high school and had a great career at University of Utah. And then just a fine NBA career, but uh, he knocked us out of the state tournament, uh, both my sophomore year and my junior year. And, and so it was fun to have him move on so we could finally win the state championship my senior year yeah and I mean you did win state your senior year and uh I mean social media really wasn't a thing and AU wasn't really a thing and I mean you got to be named a McDonald's All-American so my question to you is how did you really get exposure back then as a player were you doing any of the big camps uh, in the summer or I mean what were those off seasons like for you to maybe help get that exposure out of high school yeah, good question. Uh, I participated in a camp in California uh, my, just before my senior year. I, I think that caught some attention. But also, my uh, as it turned out, I, I mentioned this coach that I had in junior high. His name is Rick Bolas. 
And, and Rick Bolas was, uh, he taught high school, but he also ran a recruiting service. Um, it was called High Potential Recruiting Service. And, and so his name was very well respected, particularly back east. And, and I think he had some good things to say about me in his recruiting newsletter. So just here and there, I guess, word got out that, that this skinny white kid from Utah could, could play. So, so now the recruiting process for you, you're getting a bunch of letters, I'm assuming. Um, was BYU an easy choice for you, just you know, being from Utah, or was there a close number two that you thought about? Yeah, BYU was a, a natural fit. Again, my high school is across the street from, from the campus of BYU, but uh, I also uh, was interested in University of Kentucky and University of Louisville. They had Coach Hall and Coach Crum uh, back in the day, and then also I uh, was close with some of the coaches at University of Utah. So it was, it was quite a process, and, and I wanted to be open-minded and, and look around, but... Uh, in the end, BYU was was a nice fit, and I enjoyed the guys there, and the coaching staff was great. And so, and also throughout the recruiting process, you know, my mom tried to stay pretty neutral, uh, but I remember one morning uh, I was awakened early in the morning, and and there was my mother uh, over my bed, and and she was telling me, "Okay, it's time for you to go to BYU." So. <laughs> <laughs> Neutral went out the window there. <laughs> right. With that loving nudge, I called the coaches and said, "Hey, I'm in." <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. They would say, "Mother knows best," right? Um, exactly. So, so you get to play with Danny Ainge, Fred Roberts, your freshman year, right? You come in. I, I always love asking this question: what's it, What's it like going into an everyday practice with those guys? And what was the biggest adjustment for you? going from high school to college? Well, what, one nice thing that, that I had being so close to BYU is uh, before my senior year, I spent most of my time in the gym up at BYU. So I was playing against these college guys throughout that summer before my senior year <clears throat> and building friendships and building my game. And, and so that was very helpful as I, you know, started my senior year. I've been playing against college guys throughout the summer and now I'm playing against high school guys. So that was, that was very helpful. And then at the next level, it was really uh, just a more physical game, faster game. And uh, the, the, the interesting thing, it wasn't much fun at the time, but uh, there were, there were two seniors when Fred Roberts and I were, freshman and and one of them happened to be fred's older brother glenn and, and so these two seniors would just pound on on fred and i throughout the preseason and very physical so it wasn't much fun at the time but it was great preparation for the two of us to step in and and, and uh become starters uh, where these seniors were, were anticipating being starters. And now these two young kids come in and take their jobs and they made us pay for it, but it, it paid off in the long run. Yeah. I mean, you had a lot of success. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about was you served your religious mission after your sophomore season for two years, which I really admire. And I have a two part question to this, but 
Um, how did that mission either build you as a person, a man, and spiritually? And part two to that question is, are you able to really work on your game and stay in you know game shape during that mission? And are you watching BYU games and trying to follow the team while you're away, or is hoops just not on your mind as much, you know, while you're serving that mission? Yeah, excellent question. The <clears throat> those two years as a missionary, the, the, those are cherished times. It, it's uh, it was interesting in that so much of my life was focused on basketball, and and uh, you know, but when when the time came to when I was old enough to serve a mission. It was still a hard decision because I, I was right in the thick of things with basketball. And, but in the end, uh, I just felt like it was the right thing to set basketball aside. And that brought so many rewards. I could go on for hours about the, the, the blessings and the joys of, of serving as a missionary and trying to share a message about Jesus Christ with, with other people. And I was in Spain, so I had the other blessing of being able to learn Spanish during these two years. And, and it was a wonderful time. And my commitment was, uh, I'm going to try to be the best missionary that I can be. I've tried to be the best basketball player that I could be. And as part of that, I, I'm not going to take a jump shot for two years. And uh, I'm going to focus on, on being uh, uh, the best representative uh, uh, for my church that I could be. So through those two years, you have one day a week is a preparation day where you can buy your groceries and do your laundry. And, and I would use that day as an opportunity to get out and exercise. And, and, and I did have I, two things I did. I wanted to keep my legs in some sort of shape uh, during this layoff period. So <clears throat> I did have a, a dunking drill where I would go in and dunk and, and, you know, Sometimes it'd be early in the morning, and, and so I, you always go have a companion as as a missionary. And my companions were nice enough; they'd catch the 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 ball coming through the hoop before it would bounce and wake up neighbors and things. So I did this dunking drill, and and then also in Spain, most of the apartment buildings, you know, you're out knocking on doors trying to share your message, and, and so they're usually four to six floors high. So I would walk up these stairs and but that was the extent of the the keeping in shape was climbing stairs and, and maybe doing my dunking drill whenever I had that opportunity um, so it was it was a wonderful experience and I would recommend it highly but uh, one of the positive things that came out of that was <clears throat> basketball became new and exciting to me again so after those two years were over, when I came back, it was so fresh and fun and new. And, and it, 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 I had lost some of that prior to my mission. So coming back and getting started, it, again, it was a rude awakening uh, coming off the mission. But slowly things came back together and, and uh, uh, worked out well those last two years at BYU. Yeah. And I love hearing about that. And I think it's so cool. Um, I have a lot of friends that, you know, go and serve their mission. They just talk about how they really find themselves spiritually and as a person. And I'm curious, you know, taking that time away from basketball, when you come back to BYU, um, do you think that you, that mission really helped you discover yourself more as a basketball player and as a teammate also? Like, did you take things from that mission into basketball? Because you went in and scored 22 points as a junior. I mean, then nearly 28 as a senior. So, I mean, it, you came in fresh, like you said, taking that time away. So I'm curious how that mission really helped you in your basketball. 
Yeah, th thanks for that question. The the one of the things I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but I, I, in, in in my book, the values delta, I talk about different values and how they impact us as as people and and how they impact those around us. And and that was part of really the mission experience is, is you get to think about what you value and, and what are your values. And part of being a, a missionary, you know, it takes a lot of discipline, uh, a lot of hard work, a lot of teamwork. And, and, and those same values uh, apply on the basketball court in, in a team setting and, 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 and so to come back and have these values magnified and, and use them to now not, now the focus is not uh, inviting others to come unto Jesus Christ, but it's, okay, how, how can we be successful as a unit, as a team? How can we be more cohesive? How can we be a little bit more unselfish? How, how can we use our time more effectively? How can we work harder? And, and so all of those different values that, that were emphasized and hopefully developed as a missionary, I think they translated uh, into some of the success that I had after my mission. Yeah. And I mean, those clearly paid off for you. All those values definitely paid off because you ended up being a part of that legendary 1984 draft with the Dream, Jordan, and all those amazing names. And uh, you were the other number one pick. You're the number one pick of the second round. So you're <laughs> you're you're the the other number one pick of that draft. But uh, did you have any memorable workouts going into that draft process, or what was that process like for you? And uh, also, did you think that being an older rookie was going to maybe hurt your draft stock going in? Do you think it hurt your draft stock at all? You know, I don't think that played in in it at all. Actually, it never really came up much, but. I remember uh, Milwaukee invited me back and I had an in interesting conversation with Don Nelson. And, and that was just a great opportunity to, to spend time with an NBA legend, but also just go through his questioning and things like that. So that, that, that they, they showed some interest. And then I also visited with back in the day. I mean, we're going back a, a lot of years, but they, we didn't have the typical workouts like they have now. They have more just to interview you, talk to you. So I had a good interview with Cleveland. And then I, uh, uh, being in Utah, Frank and Scott Layden, uh, Frank was the coach at the time of the Utah Jazz. And, and they came down and we went to lunch together and had a nice visit. And so uh, a lot of the talk was that the Jazz would select me in that 84 draft. And I think they were at 15. And, and so, uh, as you all will certainly remember, the Jazz took some unknown kid out of Gonzaga. And, <laughs> you know, when they announced John Stockton, people are there in the Salt Palace. And my wife was there. And they're, I don't know if they were booing or, or saying who, uh, <laughs> but it's probably the best the draft pick the Jazz ever made in choosing John Stockton, but there was a lot of talk about them taking Devin Durant at 15. You know, it's a great draft. It's probably, I think, still probably the best draft of all time. I mean, 2000, and the, the one with LeBron is a really good draft, too. And But I think that's probably the best draft of all time. Did you have a feeling how special that draft was 
going into it? Like, did you did you have, understand the magnitude of of all the players that were going to be drafted, or was it just basically just a draft in your opinion? Like when you went into it, yeah, yeah, really the latter. At the time, we didn't really have a sense of, of how much these uh, men would accomplish over the course of their careers, and of course, Sam Bowie went went number one. And so everyone's thinking he, he, he would be the, uh, the one that would stand out from the draft, which didn't turn out exactly that way. Uh, number two with Elijah Wan, um, he certainly had an amazing career. And number three was, was magical and with Michael Jordan. And, you know, I, I was close with Charles Barkley. Uh, and... Anyway, but at the time we, we didn't we didn't have any sense uh, of the impact that that draft would have. Do you remember that first training NBA training camp? What that experience was like? Oh yeah, 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 very well. And uh, uh, I love my experience with the with the Pacers. It was it was all new. Trying to figure out how I could uh, how I could convert my game to to that level uh, and you know, most extremely taxing physically, uh, as we can all imagine. But one of the things, I'll just share a quick story about training camp is uh, at the end of training camp, you, you have your preseason games. And so we, the Pacers, went to Peoria, Illinois, and we played against the Chicago Bulls. And that was Michael Jordan's first professional game. Oh, wow. So, so it was interesting in that, you know, here we are in this small gym in Peoria, Illinois, and this is Jordan's debut at the professional level and for preseason. And during warmups, there was a lot of chatter on our end of the court about look at Jordan, look at those shoes he's wearing. And he, he had these red and white and black shoes on that were, were, were very, uh, unique for the time, but that was the chatter as we as we warmed up was Jordan's shoes, and and that was the debut of Air Jordans. Wow! And he went on, you know, he kept wearing those shoes, and they were against the the league's dress policy at the time, and and so he got fined for wearing those shoes, but it was the the perfect marketing uh, stunt because that was the beginning of the Air Jordan empire. That's really amazing to experience that too, to be able to see that. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's crazy. And I remember you always used to wear the necklaces too, which obviously is a big no-no in today's NBA also. But um, I got to ask, what was your welcome to the league moment? And what I mean by that is who's like the first player that you went up against that really burned you to where you're thinking like, wow, the NBA is different. <laughs> I mean, you, you must've had that moment, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I had I had uh, two moments that come to mind that were kind of fun. One was the uh, it was for whatever reason Bird was back in Indiana and he came uh, to this was I think Market Square Arena back in the day and we were, we were just you know playing pickup uh, and uh, actually this was this was. That, that was one instance. Let me go to a different instance where I, where I get to guard Bird in the garden. Oh, wow. And, and we, we must have switched off somehow because I wouldn't normally be assigned to guard Bird. 
And, but I remember I, uh, he, he was past three point line on the sideline <clears throat> and I was up into him as tight as I could be. And uh, I was going to, you know, this was my rookie chance to guard Larry Bird. And uh, he just pulled up and, and hit a three and I was all over him on top of him. And I looked back and it, it was nothing but net. Uh, that, that was a, a nice welcome moment for me. Hold on a second. Uh, did he talk? Did he talk to you while he did it too? No, no he no. didn't give you any, no, no, no classic bird trash talk to you. No. And maybe, you know, we, like I said, we ran a little bit up and down uh, at market square arena before we played. And he, he went easy on, on the rookie. He didn't, he didn't say anything in, in that particular case. <laughs> <laughs> and what was the second one? You had two, you said. Uh, another one was <clears throat> we were playing in the old spectrum against uh, the 76ers, and I got to guard Julius Erving. Oh, wow. So here, you know, here's he's my boyhood uh, idol. And uh, so, so again, I was doing my best to guard Julius, and, and, and he was running me off different screens and things. And uh, and I, I couldn't keep up, frankly. So, so I remember I just started, I started holding him. You know, I'd grab his jersey, I'd grab his arm, I'd do whatever I could to keep, keep up with him. And I just had a firsthand experience of what an amazingly talented athlete that, that man was at his size, how quick he was, how strong he was, and how he could jump. And so I kept doing my thing, hanging on to him. And so then there was a foul called some, you know, off the ball and, and Julius kind of walked over the official and just said, Hey, please, you know, get this guy off me. <laughs> and, and so I, I came just, I was so close to just kind of saying, Hey, Mr. Irving, I, I apologize. You're my boyhood hero. <laughs> it won't happen again, but <laughs> I refrained. You know, I was just about to ask you that too, because, you know, we have a lot of guests on and, and they have that opportunity, that amazing opportunity to go against their, you know, childhood idol. And, and one of the things that we're always curious about is when, when can you turn it off? You know, when it's like you're on the court and you're like, oh my God, there's Dr. J. I got to guard him. Like, did, did you have that awestruck moment? Like, did, could you turn it off when the, when the game started or was it something that you just, it was there the whole time when you played, played against him in that game? Like, take us through that. Tell us more. Yeah, really, you you you, uh, you just have to turn it off, and you, you you turn it off. But it's it's moments like uh, when you're competing, it's you're going hundred percent. But there are times when you know, say it's a dead ball, and you're you're sitting there at, at, at the foul line. You may be standing next to your boyhood hero. There are moments when you think, "Wow, I'm standing next to to Julius Irving." Uh, uh, you know, uh, Larry Bird, um, and 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 I, th I think that's I think that would be the case for a lot of guys when when it's when the action has paused. I don't I don't think you can help but think I'm I'm on the same court with this guy that I've been watching on television for years. But boys, as soon as the action starts again, it's competition. Yeah, I mean, you played in such a special era. That must have happened every night. You got Magic, Bird. I mean, it, I mean, the list goes on. That must have happened every single night. But 
I find it so hard to believe that you had seven rookies on that Pacer team. I mean, seven rookies is a lot. I mean, did you have any rookie duties or did the rookies actually haze the vets <laughs> since you outnumbered the vets? <laughs> yeah, you know, with the, the, the vets, they were easy on us. Uh, our our uh, captain was Jerry Seasting. And, you know, we played with Herb Williams, Clark Kellogg, uh, Steve Stepanovich. They, 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 were, they were very easy on the rookies because they were all, you know, most of them were relatively young in the league themselves. So, so they went easy on us. And uh, whenever they want us to do something, we could, we could spread out the duties amongst uh, a big group. So not too bad. And how were those practices like? I mean, you know, I'm a huge Knicks fan. Um, I'm a little bit younger, so Herb Williams was bench guy on the Knicks when I was when I was a kid. But I would hear stories about how he was an amazing player when he was a Pacer. What was it like? Was it like was it like playing against some of those guys in practice? What was it like? You know, an actual practice with those guys? Yeah, I, I I loved every second of it because they they were great athletes, great players, but also great guys. And, yeah, you know, and they were willing to help out and give you a tip here and there. And, uh, but they don't come better than Herb Williams. And, uh, you know, you just made me think a little bit, uh, you know, with being a Knicks fan, <clears throat> we, uh, and talking about some great players. Um, I remember a time we played against Bernard King and w- what a great athlete, uh, great player. But anyway, <laughs> uh, he took advantage of our, our youthfulness as the Pacers. And uh, if you look back in the books, I think Bernard King scored 60 points one night and it was against uh, our, our Indiana Pacers. So we all took a turn trying to slow down Bernard King while the garden was chanting 60, 60, 60. <laughs> and he, he gave them what they wanted. But it was, it was a great night to, to see a, a tremendous athlete perform. Um, <clears throat> It was unfortunate that that uh, I contributed a little bit to his 60. You know, it's funny, too, when you talk about King. He's one of those guys that gets forgotten, you know, because of the injury. And then, you know, he was talked about after making that comeback, playing with the Bullets, you know, and, and I lead the league in scoring, I believe, after he came back. Um, it's a shame what happened to him, though, because I think he'd be up there with one of the greats um, in terms of his scoring ability. He always just seemed to be able to score the ball. Like, it, it, his game – so that 60, when he scores that 60, he's scoring from everywhere. And you got to remember, in that, in that time, you know, we're, people aren't taking threes, right? So he's scoring off the glass, mid-range game from the foul line. I mean, it's pretty much impossible to stop him because of all the different kind of moves he had, right? Oh yeah. Once you know, like you say, he he was slowed down by by, by injury, but but boy, when he had it going, uh, there, there was no stopping him, and he was so good in the open court, but uh, could also just spot up and and knock it down. Just a great player. Yeah, and you elected to play overseas after your second season in the NBA, and I'm just curious why overseas, and did you have any desire to maybe try to make a return to the NBA when you're going overseas, or uh, what, was, what was that process like, um, making that decision? Well, after after my second season in training camp, I got cut by the Pacers, and, and the Suns picked me up. So I got to go through uh, preseason with the Suns and played a few games with them at the beginning of the regular season, and then they cut me 
and I played briefly in the CBA, but um, my college game didn't translate all that well to the NBA. A lot of what I did in college was near the basket. And, and again, uh, with my 200 pound frame, a lot of it didn't translate into, in, in, into the league. And, and so I had an opportunity to play in Spain, which for me, having been a missionary there for two years, uh, was like going, going home essentially. So my wife and I, we, uh, packed up our little daughter and, and, uh, head to Spain, played there for a couple of years and briefly in, in France. Um, but then I realized, Hey, it's been a good run, but it's, it's time to, to open up the next chapter. Yeah. And I mean, the basketball overseas is incredible, though. I mean, everybody that we talk to, even in your era of overseas, there's some phenomenal players over there. But we also hear about some wild experiences that happen from playing overseas, whether it's in, in the game or, you know, just living in a new country and just the culture shock. So I got to ask, what was your wildest experience playing overseas? You got to have a memory that comes to mind that that was pretty, pretty crazy for you. Oh, for sure. Everybody that plays overseas, I'm sure they have a few experiences, but one that comes to mind for me, <clears throat> the fans are so avid and rabid. And so we had a, a game in our gym and uh, things, things didn't, the officials were taking a lot of heat from the fans and, and just consistently were making uh, uh, unacceptable calls. And so the, the game ended, we lost and the, the locker rooms were such that the, the officials would, were, would head the same direction that we would head to get to the locker room. And so as, as these officials are coming off the court, they're attacked by the fans. So they're, they're surrounded by the fans. They're yelling at them. They don't have an escape. And, and we're, coming that same direction and somebody knocks one of the officials down on the ground and it's just mayhem. So as I'm coming off, I I'm actually trying to, you know, push back on some fans and, and do what I can to get these officials out of this group. So I'm right there in the middle of it. So anyway, that, that they, they're able to finally exit and, and all is well, at least I thought <laughs> So the next year, near the beginning of the year, maybe the second or third game in, I'm playing for a different team in Spain. <clears throat> and as it turns out, this same official is calling the game. And uh, so in the, the first half, uh, I got whistled for four fouls very quickly by this guy. And, and, uh, and then the second half started, and we're probably – I started the second half and we're probably a minute in and he whistled me for the fifth foul. And so they're all phantom fouls, but here I am thinking I was trying to help this guy out to save his skin the previous season. And he never forgets. And he thinks I'm one of the instigators. So he made me pay that, that next season, by sending me to the bench early. Wow. That's crazy. Hey, one of the questions I want to ask you that, that popped into my head as you talked about, you know, starting your, overseas career in Spain. Um, did a lot of the players respect you because you spoke Spanish? I'm, I'm assuming your Spanish was pretty good being over there for two years when you were a missionary. Did they respect you for that? Was it easy for you to communicate on the court since you knew their language? 
I think it was a, it was a, a nice advantage because I was I was one of the guys. There were no communication barriers, and so we spent a lot of time together, not only on the court but off the court. And, and so, in that sense, I think it was easier for them to feel comfortable with me because I, I, I was again just part part of the group. Yeah, it was basically like a second home, like you said earlier. And and I know a lot of the guys that we talk to when they get sent over to like, you know, Turkey or all those countries where they don't speak the language. It's it's one of the things that they'll say a lot. That's the hardest part about, you know, going there. They don't say changing their game. They say the the culture shock of having to learn a new language and or, or just being like I don't know if if you when you played there was there the two American rule or no yes two okay yeah so that's the other thing that you know I, I probably made you more valuable too that you spoke the language too as being one of the Americans right I'm sure that 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 probably thought about that too in terms of you being able to communicate also um, who was the one guy overseas when you played that was the guy. And what I mean by that was like, who is the Michael Jordan, Larry Bird overseas? And it doesn't have to be somebody that the listeners know because with the internet, people can Google, but we always love asking that question to, to kind of help our listeners understand more about, you know, the overseas game. Yeah. Uh, wow. That, that is a hard question because, <clears throat> uh, no one really stands out. Uh, you know, it, it's more I'm trying to think. It's more like team ball for the most part. No, we we had some we had some stars, some great scores. There one I can't even remember his name. Um, I my memory's good for about five years. <laughs> 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 After that, it, it it starts to slip my mind. One of the my dear friends in Spain was a guy named Steve Trumbo. So he was a college teammate. But he, he went on to have a great career in Spain. Uh, he married a, a, a Spanish woman. And uh, so he played as a, for, a, you know, a foreigner for a time. And then he became a national and just had an incredible career over there. Uh, uh, Steve Trumbo, that, that's one name. But sorry, I'm not coming up with anything good oh. on that one. No, that's fine. That's no worries. You talked about, you know, earlier in our interview about, you know, knowing it was time to hang it up in different chapters. And I like how you use the word chapters because I think that's kind of a great way to look at your life. You know what I mean? Like there's there's so many different things you can do in life when you choose to do what you want to do in life. What was – did you have a plan after basketball? Did you know what you kind of wanted to get into or did something just – you know, take you into that place of, of where you, where you, you know, continued on to that next chapter? Yeah. Very, very perceptive question. Thanks. Um, the, for my wife and I, uh, the, the closest thing I could call to a goal was, wouldn't it be nice if we could play for five, five years professionally <clears throat> and save up our money and, and then, then, then move on. And when I was in college, I, took some classes so that I, I could uh, teach seminary. So I'm teaching uh, the, the, uh, about religion to, to high school kids. And that was what my father did. And I thought that would, that would be a good career. So we talked, let's play five years professionally, <clears throat> save our money, and then we'll go, go be a teacher. And that, that sounded like a great plan. And so we went down that path. And in the end, we, uh, I was able to play for five years as a as a professional, and 
my last stop was in France, played there for, for a time. And then I got cut there and, you know, we had two kids at the time and, and my wife just said, Hey, uh, it, it's time to get a real job now. <laughs> and so that was the time to transition into teaching. But as it turned out, I, I never became a seminary teacher. I, uh, took another position with a software company, Word Perfect Corporation, and became a sales rep for them and then got involved in, in their marketing department and was involved in kind of a corporate America type job for four years. And then uh, in 1993, I left Word Perfect and started a real estate investment company with a dear friend. And uh, that's what I've been doing for the last, uh, what? 20 almost 30 years now nice um let's talk about the book for a bit if you don't mind uh what do you want our listeners to know about the book i know uh writing a book from what i hear from a lot of people that we've had on the show that have written books it's definitely not an easy process but a rewarding process um what was the motivation behind writing your book yeah i, I think my life is, is in in a way is three phases where there was the uh, basketball phase, and uh, I learned about different values there as uh, hard work, team, teamwork, discipline, and the list goes on. And uh, then I got involved in real estate investment. And you know, as a basketball player, you're always trying to make your team better and add value to your team and to yourself. And in real estate, so many of those same values applied where you maybe you buy an asset, you know, if you for example, a single family home where you buy it in, in, with the intent to resell it and make a profit. And so you're going to go in and you're going to mow the lawn and plant some flowers and put in new carpet and paint and and add value to that asset that way. And I, 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 spent a lot of years doing that and still do that. Uh, And, but the emphasis was how do we add value to an, to an asset, a physical asset. And, and over time uh, I I gave a lot of thought to how how do we add value to ourselves? How do we add value to those around us? How, How do we, how do we strengthen our, our family, our, our, our marriage relationship? Uh, and how do values impact these relationships that involve people? And, and so how can I become a, a, a better employee or how can I operate my company more efficiently? And, and the spirit of the book is by focusing on your values, you can make a positive difference. And, and the book's called The Values Delta. And Delta, one of the meanings of Delta is simply difference or change. And so how, how can I focus on, for example, if I focus on the value of gratitude, a simple one, if I'm a more grateful person and I express that, um, how might that affect my children? How might that affect my friends if, if I express gratitude for, for those relationships in different ways? And, and so, so that's the invitation through the book is, Take a value, focus on that value and how it impacts something that has a special meaning for you in your life. 
and like you say, it, it's it's a it's a wonderful process to write a book. It's a difficult process to write a book, but in the end, once you publish it, it's, it's like you you won the championship because all of your hard work has finally paid off, and and hopefully, it's it offers some benefits to the readers. And it's there. And the cool thing about it is whether it's in digital, right? Now digital is basically forever, right? You know, or it's in print, paperback, hardcover. You know, it's it's there for anyone to pick up and read and find, which I think is awesome. And the thing you're talking about with gratitude, it's a, it sounds like a ripple effect, right? You know, when you when you're doing that, it, it you you're it's almost like, you know, your basketball time where you're encouraging other players on the team and the next thing you know you're working together more like a team and everybody's working together and it's it's affecting everybody positively i think that's a great message personally um and, and i just talked about it but let's let's definitely promote this where can our listeners find and purchase the book yeah if they'll go to uh, thevaluesdelta.com there's some links there where they can pick it up and and also there's a link to a video there on the website that uh, it, it emphasizes the value of service. It's about a 13-minute video. So it's, uh, uh, I think, a, a, a reward for going to the website, uh, thevaluesdelta.com. Check out this video and, and be sure you have a, a tissue close by because it's, it's kind of a tearjerker. I, I think that uh, your listeners would enjoy it. Nice, nice. Thanks for promoting that for sure. We're going to do a quick lightning round with you if you don't mind. Zach's going to answer the questions. Just kind of like a one or two word answer to some fun questions Zach's got cooked up. Zach, are you ready? I am. And uh, my first question is, who is your toughest cover as a player? Just the one guy that you really just could not figure out how to guard. I love this question. The answer is easy for me. It was Tony Campbell. Okay. So, some people wouldn't, wouldn't think about Tony Campbell, but uh, we were both rookies at, at the time. He was with Detroit. And so whenever our, our rotations would always match up so that, you know, Tony was on the bench, I was on the bench, but our minutes would usually come at the same time. He was a tremendous player, very, very difficult to guard. Uh, we had similar rookie years, but I was out of the league in, in year two, and he, he went on to have a, a fabulous career. Yeah, he, he could score. That's, that's a name that's come up quite a bit. He's one of those underrated guys for sure. Yeah. Um, who's the funniest teammate you've ever had? Uh, probably, uh, I mentioned him earlier, Steve Trumbo at BYU. Uh, he and Danny Ainge, they, they were always up to something. But they were great teammates and, and uh Always before the game, it was always relaxed because we had a, a comedian in our midst, and and him and Danny were, were great teammates. Okay. Uh, any weird superstitions that you or a teammate had that come to mind or any meaning behind any of the numbers you wore, anything like that? Uh, no. The, the, I, I wore number 35, and it's interesting. You know, people say, I say, well, my name's Devin Durant. And they say, oh, Kevin Durant? <laughs> and then they'll usually say, are you related to Kevin Durant? And I'll say, yeah, yeah, I, we're brothers. I, I, I claim him. And I hope he would claim me. But uh, it was interesting that Kevin wore 35. Uh, and the reason I wore 35 was because of Daryl Griffith. Yeah, he, that was his number in high school and, and on. And, 
And uh, as soon as I could get 35, I wanted to have that because I wanted to be like Daryl Griffith. That's awesome. And uh, you had 35 before Kevin. And so, I mean, you're the, <laughs> you're the number one Durant for sure. You're the first one. Uh, who's, who's one guy that you wish you could have played with? Like, who's one guy that you really think would have complimented each other's game? Wow. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll just go with the, with the guy that, that I, I most admire now, and, and that's Steph Curry. Uh, you know, we're from different eras, but I, I just marvel at, at the things that he can do at that level. And I think it'd be a, uh, just my game was more get out and run and, and open court kind of stuff. And I, I would love to be able to run the court with Steph and, and uh, I would always encourage him to shoot first, but, but maybe if he ever looked to pass, I could get open and try to finish on the other end. <laughs> yeah i smell a comeback that, that's what i smell sure. <laughs> but uh faith is obvious uh faith and religion is obviously a huge part of your life i know it probably is for many of our other listeners as well um what is your advice to young athletes who sometimes maybe get caught up in the nba or pro lifestyles to make sure that they continue to stay true to themselves and their faith what, what, what would that advice be I think just just always think about balance and and keep the savior in your life. There's scripture that talks about seeking first the kingdom of God, and uh, everything else will be added unto you. And, and that's been the case in my life. When I put God first and remember my heavenly Father and and my Savior Jesus Christ, uh, that th that's when my life has has been the fullest and 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 the most enjoyable. Uh, but, but I think at the same time, strive to be the best you can in, in all aspects of your life. If you're competing as an athlete, just give your best effort, give it everything you've got. But, but at the same time, like you say, uh, make sure your, your faith is, gets, the, gets, the, gets the attention that it deserves because that day comes for all of us when, when we, we slow down as an athlete. But we, we never slow down as a human being and, and uh, following the principles that uh, will make our lives richer that, that are outlined in Scripture for us. I love that answer. That, that's an awesome answer. And uh, my final question to you is, what's your favorite basketball memory? If you had to pick just one, what's that one that always comes to mind? Hmm. I think the one memory that's always sweet is, you know, as you get older, basketball becomes a little bit less fun. Uh, you know, so it's probably most fun back when I was in, in junior high on, on the blacktop in Kentucky and just driving around to the different city parks and playing basketball against strangers, strangers who become friends and, uh, but that the so I preface I use that as a preface to say that probably the sweetest memory was uh, winning the state championship in in high school, and and part of that was just the the friendships, you know, the relationships that you develop over time, and and to also, you know, been uh, suffered through through some tough defeats early on in, in high school and then to get together with a group of guys that, that were very unselfish. And, and uh, my best friend was the point guard on that team, but to, 
to win that state championship at the final buzzer, that that'd be right at the top, if not at the top, as far as fun basketball memories go. Yeah, what a great memory that is. I mean, that's one that'll stay with you for the rest of your life for sure. Um, super appreciate your time. You're really generous with it today and and got to hear a lot of great stories. And, you know, we're really just fans of the game and, and we love hearing history of it and just kind of trying to get good messages out there, but at the same time, you know, just understand more of the history, you know, fill in the holes and the, hear the stories you don't get to hear. And, and we really appreciate you, you know, talking with us today. Um, before we let can you I out tell, of here, is there anything you'd can like can to I tell promote? you one last story? Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. Please, please course. do. Uh, just on that note and just sure. commending you, you guys for what you do. Uh, I, I listened to some of your podcasts with, with Gene Smith. Oh, cool. And what a, what a great guy, but that, uh, I played against Georgetown my senior year. We went back to DC and, and Gino was the point guard for Georgetown at the time. So it was fun to hear his voice again, uh, on your, on your program. Um, but just what a class guy, you know, you look back and you think about the different people you competed against and, and, uh, it just brings back good memories and hearing Gino again, we, we, we spent a little time together at the Pacers in a training camp or something, but just became good friends after, you know, after some tough competition, but it just brought back good memories of, of that, that uh, battle against Georgetown where I, I think I was the leading scorer in the country at the time. And they just shut me down. They had Gino and, other guys, I think Dwayne McLean and some other guys, and then Patrick Ewing was 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 backing them all up. But what a great defense they had, and and I, I believe they beat the University of Kentucky that year to win win the championship. Uh, but anyway, from from the perspective of a listener, thanks what you for what you're doing to preserve the history and share some some of these these stories that that you're doing, and and also from from my perspective. Just brings back some more memories of of a day gone by. Thank you. Oh, I love it. That's so cool. Really, it's really flattering to really be honest with you. And we love seeing all the connections when other guests come on. They say, "Oh, we see you had this guest on," or we listen to the show because of that guest. And it just kind of makes those connections keep happening with you know more future guests and past guests. It's just it's really neat. Um, Zach, do you want to add anything before we let Mr. Durant out of here? Yeah, I just want to say thanks so much for your time. I mean, this is an honor. My dad, uh, your name came up quite a bit when my dad talks about, you know, all those amazing BYU days. And I have so many friends who are BYU fans, so they're going to really enjoy this one a lot. So like I said, it was an honor. Thank you. And the connections are special. I think Gene Smith was talking about when he uh, ripped Michael Jordan, when he stole from him in that Pacer training camp. So I'm sure that you got to experience that too. So uh, we just really appreciate you coming on today. And I know our listeners are going to love your book. So thank you. Well, thanks. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Eric. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Thanks for coming on the show. Stay safe out there. We really appreciate it. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. What a great episode. I mean, it's so cool to hear those stories, you know, especially with him being you know, in that, that classic 84 draft, you know, hearing what it was like, you know, the mission stuff. There's so many... You know, there's so much great information that Mr. Durant gave us, and uh, you asked some awesome questions today, man. The thing about uh, the thing about did you play basketball when you were on the mission, and and you know, obviously when he came back, I mean, he, you know, his his scoring went through the roof. So I always wondered that when you asked that question, I always wondered, you know, 
because it's a couple of years are on the mission. It affects how you know their difference in the age and whatnot. But yeah, do, I mean, do they really play basketball or not? And then how much of it is a learning curve to get back into the swing in terms of of uh, getting back to that elite level? You know. Yeah, because you and I know a lot of people who serve their mission, which I really appreciate. And it's like they put so much time and, uh, you know, energy into doing all the special things that they're doing. So I was just curious if, A, you have the time or B, you even have really the energy or like, is that even on your mind? Because it's, I mean, a mission is such a, like a a life and spiritual commitment, you know? So, I mean, I I was really curious about that. Or if you were to make time for basketball, at what level? You know, because I, I know that when I was training to go play college hoops, it's like my whole day was evolved around my workouts. You know, I was like, I'm going to do weights in the morning. I'm going to get my couple thousand shots up. I'm going to work on my ball handling. I'm going to go run miles. And it's like, I just don't even, I couldn't even imagine making the time for all of that, you know. Well, the commitment's huge too, because if you think about it, and maybe it wasn't as big of a deal back then as now, if you're 24, 25 going into the NBA draft, your stock's going to drop. It, I right. mean, that's just the way it is, right? And it's like the commitment you're making. And obviously, if you if you're from a religious background, and if you're not, you know, and you listen to the show, it's cool. You know, it's we're either way, honestly. But if you make that commitment, and obviously you're making the commitment because God's the most important thing in your life. If you're making that commitment, but you're making a commitment to put your basketball career on hold, which in effect could essentially end your basketball career. So I don't think people understand, you know, really how much of a difficult decision that could be. I think everybody that does a mission, it's not difficult in that sense because they know that they're they're serving the Lord and that's what they want to do and that's their higher purpose through their whole entire life. And basketball is a, a chapter, like he said, of their life. But it's definitely something that can really put an end to your career depending on how far away you are from the game. If you don't play for two years, you know, are you going to get passed up when you come back? I mean, you're going to be 23, 24. When, and there's guys like, you know, Sean Bradley has a successful NBA career. He did a mission. There's other guys that have done it. But it's it's definitely something that I respect knowing what you're knowing going into it, if that makes sense. Yeah, but also where you're putting your priorities too. You know, yeah. I mean, you're you're putting your faith and your your spiritual and your religion and your God before your basketball. And I have so much respect for that. Oh yeah, totally. I, and that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. I I don't think it's a difficult decision for anybody that chooses to do that because of where they are with their faith. I'm just saying it's it's a respectful decision, thinking that you're you know you're you're basically putting a huge risk on your career by doing this where, you know, you might not play in the NBA where you had that opportunity to play in the NBA because of doing what you're doing. So it's just, it was cool to hear those questions you asked because it really, I don't think a lot of people think about that. I don't think really a lot of people think, well, oh, they're going on a mission for two years. Well, are they playing basketball at all? Like when you asked that question, I was like, that's a great question because maybe, you know, like he said, he did a dunking drill once a week and he climbed a bunch of stairs. I mean, yeah. try doing that nowadays where everything is so basketball centric. Like you said, when you played, and even now with all these different traveling teams, you know, and, and all the different, you know, I mean, people that are super serious about basketball, it's 24 7 for them, right? Imagine yeah. you not playing for two years. And those drills he's talking about, that just, that hurts my knees just thinking about it. Cause I used yeah. to do those drills yeah. too. And that, that, that definitely hurts your knees. I think about, think about that though. And all of our listeners, especially 
the guys and girls that played at the professional level, because we definitely do have professional level players listening to our, our podcast, which we're beyond grateful for. Think about what that would do to your game if you took oh, yeah. two years off from your game in your absolute like beginning prime. of your prime. Really, if you really think about it, you know, um, it's, I wouldn't say prime, but it's your developmental of both your body and your skills. And your prime. oh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's when your body really starts to develop as, as a pro, you know. But think about this though like your prime, your, your, your big prime is what 25 to 28, wouldn't you think? Somewhere in that range where you're. I mean, nowadays it's a little bit. Tom Brady has pushed the envelope now, <laughs> where where you know people are playing, you know, until I mean, Tom Brady's going to be forty five. He's still well, playing at an elite level, which is insane. Well, they, well, well, they freeze him in the summers. I don't. They know probably do. On. Like he's him and Gronk. Probably, yeah, <laughs> Gronk, Gronk. They probably freeze him, and Gronk probably puts like beer bottles in him while he's keep to keep his beer he, cool or he, something. He he ices himself. That's what he does. <laughs> yeah, he, well, I mean, God, you want to talk about somebody that completely respects his body and goes all out for being able to play the sport at this high level still. It's And I hate Tom Brady. Not as much anymore now that he's not a Patriot. But it's it's pretty impressive, man. And they didn't have a lot of that stuff back then. So kudos to Mr. Durant. And to be honest with you, he's very generous with his time. And you guys are very generous with – you know, sharing the social media, definitely uh, helping us out, you know, giving us comments, reviews, all those things help the show out. You know, we get great guests, but it also gives us an idea of what you're liking and what you're not liking from the show, which really helps us out. And we're just grateful for it. I mean, we're charting as of this morning in five different countries. It's uh, it's phenomenal. You know, just two two dudes that met playing pickup ball in the morning, you know, and, and taking it to where we're at. I mean, we're honestly grateful. and We cannot express that enough we do in every episode but it's important to do that like like mr durant said gratitude practicing gratitude is is one of the things that i think if we all did things would be a lot cooler than they are right now in this very tense time so thanks for thanks for you know listening to the pod for 45 minutes to an hour and just kind of escaping and learning some great stories about college ball and life lessons and things like that um zach is there anything you want to add before we get out of here yeah, just big thanks to Devin Durant and also our listeners for listening. But I mean, having having Durant on today was awesome. Um, really, really a fun one for me, and I just have a lot of respect for that man. So, um, just really looking forward to getting this one out to the listeners. I think they're going to get a lot out of this one today. And check out his book. You know, he's you know, there's some good stuff in his book. So definitely support and check out his book. Absolutely agree with you, man. There's there's so many lessons I think you can learn from that book just from the just from the small amount of time we talked to him today about the book, right? You know, it shows you the humility of the guy. You know, he talked really about so much different stuff and just really just grazed over his book. I mean, that's that shows a lot about a person like that where the whole interview wasn't promoting the book. Just class act for sure. Really enjoyed talking to him this morning. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening. Make sure you take care of yourselves. Be good to each other, be good to others. Thanks for listening. Peace.